This is Addison Hyman, the writer-director of Hypochondriac, and you are listening to The Graveyard Show. And welcome to another edition of the Graveyard Show podcast. I am your caretaker, and the graveyard is open. Well, we're going to talk about the new film, Hypochondriac. As director and writer of the film, Addison Hyman will be here in just a moment to talk about Hypochondriac, which will be in theaters on July 29th, and it's going to be available on demand and digital starting August 4th. Now, if you'd like to reach out to this show, you could do so by email. And the email address is gyspodcast at gmail.com. gyspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can also uh, reach out to me as well on the Graveyard Show podcast YouTube channel. Just drop a comment on there. It hits me and uh, I reply. I reply pretty quickly too. So you could do that as well. Uh, getting a lot of great comments from people on the Count Yorga video, uh, which is always appreciated. Uh, but I can get into that a little bit later. So before we get into hypochondriac, let's look at the news. Well, I'm going to start with uh, two big news items uh, over the last week. So people said yep to nope. See what I did there? Uh, I'll, I'll say it again so you can appreciate it. People said yep to nope. Just going to let that linger there for a minute. It took me all week to figure that one out, huh? Yeah, I'm very proud of myself. Jordan Peele's uh, latest feature film grossed almost $44.5 million in its opening weekend, making it the number one movie with Thor, Love and Thunder, coming in second. And that film grossed about uh, half of that. So big weekend for Nope. Um, As uh, as of this taping, Nope also scored 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, So that's with 250 uh, movie reviewers uh, giving their uh, commentary on Nope. So that's that's great score. Um, It also has 71% uh, on the audience score, and that's with 2,500 audience members uh, reviewing the film on there as well. So um, it's a really consistent rating, considering how many movies lately have had lopsided scores one way or the other. They're really either uh, critics love them and audiences hate them, or critics hate it and audiences love it. So I think that's a great sign for Jordan Peele's latest film. Now, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really looking forward to catching it in the theater uh, at some point soon. And, uh, oh, yes, uh, Top Gun Maverick uh, finished fifth with just over $10 million in its eighth week. Absolutely incredible. The other big news is the uh, release of Halloween Ends teaser trailer, which came out. I'm sure most of you have already seen it. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot going on in 60 seconds of a teaser. So uh, one of the things I caught, I'm sure there are many of you who have either done a full breakdown of this or have watched one. Uh, one of the interesting things is that it looks like Lori is uh, wearing the same style blue shirt as she wore in the original Halloween. So kind of tying it up. Uh, so yeah, Halloween ends. Is it really though? I mean, <laughs> let, let, let's be honest about this. If this movie makes... Uh, huge cash. Uh, what are the odds that we're going to see a sequel uh, after this with uh, the surviving members of this film? Uh, I say surviving members because I, I, I have a feeling I think I know what might be happening, but I don't want to give it away or talk about it because uh, I could very well be wrong. And I'd rather not put it out there. Uh, but I think that if Halloween ends makes a huge uh, cash uh, in, in its theatrical release, uh, there's, there's no way that Halloween is just going to stop. Uh, personally, I wish it would. I, I think it's run its course. Um, the Strode slash Lloyd slash Myers family saga, I think, um, has done everything it's needed to do. So... Uh, I do hope that Halloween does end here. Now, I know that it's really not going to end, but let's give it some breathing room and some space. And, um, you know, if, if you're going to reboot it or restart it, let's do it in like 10 years, please. 
let's just, you know, we've got a lot. I think, what do we have, like 13 movies since 1978? And that was with, you know, a pretty big lull between Halloween 3 and 4. And, um, you know, including the two Rob Zombie remakes in there as well. So I think we have about 13, right? So we have Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween 3, Halloween 4, Halloween 5, Halloween 6. Then we went to H2O, right? Then we did Resurrection. So that's eight right there. And then we have the two Rob Zombie remakes that came out after that. That's 10. And then this last trilogy. So, yeah, so we're looking at about 13 films since 1978. So um, 22 and 22, 44 years. There you go. But check it out. Love to know your thoughts. Uh, Are you excited? Are you thrilled? Um, Or is it just kind of a yawn for you at this point? Would love to know your thoughts. GYSpodcast at gmail.com. In other movie news, The Immaculate Room is going to be available in theaters and on demand starting August 19th. The uh, film stars uh, Emile Hirsch and Kate Bosworth. Uh, They're a seemingly perfect couple. Uh, They join a psychological experiment to compete for $5 million if they can last 50 days in a sleek white room in complete isolation. That sounds utterly frightening. I I wouldn't do that for $100 million. Uh, no phones, no family. Oh, my. That would take a lot of you out. No phones. I think most of you would disintegrate uh, without your phone. Uh, only the voice of the Immaculate Room, keeping them in check if they think of straying. But as the clock ticks down, the room becomes more than it seems, putting them through cruel tests to break their resolve and resurfacing private demons which they may not survive. Uh, again, The Immaculate Room is available in theaters and on demand starting August 19th. That sounds great. Uh, and I believe the trailer is available online as well. In more movie news, I have two movies to uh, talk to you about from Shudder. Uh, Shudder presents The Reef Stalked. Uh, it's an RLJE Films release. You can catch the trailer right now online. And... Um, also, RLJE Films and Shudder have acquired Neil Marshall's new film, The Lair. Following its world premiere at Fright Fest in August, RLJE Films will release The Lair in theaters, on demand, and digital starting October 28th. Shudder will have it in early 2023. Now, the film is written and directed by Neil Marshall, of course, we know from The Descent, among other films. And it is uh, co-written by Charlotte Kirk. Now, the film stars Charlotte Kirk, Jonathan Howard, and Jamie Bamber. In the lair, Royal Air Force pilot Lieutenant Kate Sinclair, played by Kirk, is shot down over Afghanistan and finds refuge in an abandoned underground bunker where deadly man-made biological weapons, half human, half alien, are awakened. That sounds great. Can't wait for that to come out. So again, the lair, the new film from Neil Marshall will be available in theaters and on demand and on digital October 28th, of course, right in time for Halloween. And then, of course, if you have Shudder, you will be getting that early 2023. Fathom Events is going to present a special three-night engagement of Jeepers Creepers Reborn. The fan premiere event is going to run in theaters starting September 19th through the 21st. Now, Timo Vorinsola's highly anticipated Jeepers Creepers Reborn will come to audiences via a three-night fan premiere event offered exclusively through Fathom Events Nationwide. Jeepers Creepers Reborn unfolds as the Horror Hound Festival holds its first-ever event in Louisiana, where it attracts hundreds of geeks, freaks, and die-hard horror fans from far and wide. Among them is fanboy Chase and his girlfriend, Lane, who is visiting a festival of this type for the very first time. But as the event approaches... Lane begins to experience unexplained premonitions and disturbing visions associated with the town's past, and in particular, local legend, urban myth, The Creeper. As the festival arrives and the blood-soaked entertainment builds to a frenzy, Lane believes that something unearthly has been summoned and that she is at the center of it all. Tickets for Jeepers Creepers Reborn can be purchased beginning Friday, August 6th at FathomEvents.com. That's Fathom, F-A-T-H-O-M, events, E-V-E-N-T-S, dot com, or participating theater box offices. You can find a complete list of theater locations on Fathom Events' website, and uh, that's where you go. Check it out. Jeepers Creepers Reborn, coming to a theater near you. 
Some quick Blu-ray news. The Amusement Park. George Romero's restored film, The Amusement Park, is going to be uh, released on Blu-ray September 13th. It's going to be a new 4K digital restoration that was commissioned by the George A. Romero Foundation and carried out by Indie Collect. You can catch my interview with uh, George Romero's widow, Suzanne Desrochers Romero, right here in the Graveyard Show podcast. Go back a few tombstones and you'll find it right there. It's a great interview and uh, it was my honor to have her on the program. So check it out. The Amusement Park coming to Blu-ray September 13th. And wrapping up the news, there is a flash sale going on right now for the 1980s super sci-fi documentary In Search of Tomorrow. Uh, the flash sale is running from July 21st through August 7th. And to find out more, Go to 80sscifidoc.com. That's 80sscifidoc.com. And, of course, you can find all the interviews I did with the director of that film, David Weiner, and the uh, producer, Robin Block, as well as the uh, team of Weary Pines, the composers of the soundtrack as well, Jamie Chambers and Don McLennan Jr., all available here at the Graveyard. All right, that wraps up news. Let's uh, do some quick notes. Speaking of Weary Pines, check out their website, wearypines.com, W-E-A-R-Y-P-I-N-E-S.com. And uh, you can purchase their complete soundtracks to not only In Search of Tomorrow, but In Search of Darkness 1 and 2. And they're currently working on Part 3. Uh, you can find all their work there. You can buy the discs. You can buy the MP3s. And you can also stream them on your favorite movie sites as well. And wrapping up notes... Um, I normally don't talk about this, but um, I was watching um, one of the films from Alex Magana. And Alex is uh, a filmmaker here in L.A., and he does uh, horror shorts. And uh, he was on the program about, gosh, almost two years ago now. No, a little over a year ago. And uh, he does great short films, and one of his latest really caught my attention. And the name of it is called Only Fans. And it's what you expect. It's a horror film about a woman who goes on to OnlyFans to uh, make money because she's uh, drowning in debt. And what is so great about this film is that it's really more about reality than it is horror. I highly recommend it. Check it out. Uh, Alex Magana is found online at ACM. ACM. And you can find him on YouTube. His films are great, but check out OnlyFans. It is just really powerful um, and chilling. And uh, unfortunately, it's a very sad state of where we're at right now uh, in our society. All right, enough about that. As you hear in the background, a new grave is being added. And when that happens, that means my guest is here, and it's time for me to get to work. Joining me now is Addison Hyman, the writer-director of the new film Hypochondriac, which made its debut at this year's South by Southwest. The film will be in theaters July 29th and on demand and digital starting August 4th. And it's my pleasure to welcome Addison to the graveyard. Welcome to the show. Thank you, the caretaker. Honestly, this is, I, I, I really wish I, I just, um, I wanted to make like, I know this is a podcast, but if you can just imagine me like breaking through and a bunch of confetti and balloons popping in as I like make my way through the room. Maybe some finger gun, you know, like, you know, like that kind of atmosphere. Um, I love it. I'm just saying, like, that's great. I love it. (laughs) You know what? I'm going to have to keep that in mind for another time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, listen, I've been looking forward to speaking uh, with you about your film since seeing it. Uh, but before I jump into the film, I wanted to ask um, when you first realized that you wanted to become a filmmaker. Ooh, that's a good question. It's so funny because there's not like one moment for me. I will say like my interest in film peaked when I was a child because me and my father um, bonded over television, especially genre television. So like at night I would go into the TV room, he'd be watching the X-Files and Star Trek Voyager. And then so that was like my my interest in all that kind of stuff. And then I started in theater. Um, so I did all that. And then people told me that my plays sounded like TV shows, which is a huge insult in the theater world. Um, I love them. They're still my friends but also i was like well maybe i should uh, transition um and this is such a weird thing to to 
why I don't know why this is my interest of it, but I was watching the Ryan Murphy show Scream Queens. Um, oh yeah, and I was also binge watching Gilmore Girls for the first time in a deep dark depression, and then I decided to go. I'm gonna try writing a pilot, and then that was kind of how I got my way into wow. Um, yeah, writing at the Starbucks under Second City uh, at like three, four in the morning because I was in deep, dark insomnia. But that's where I wrote this really goofy pilot called Kappa Force, which is about sorority crime fighters trying to destroy evil frat scum, which is obviously <laughs> so different than Hypo. But um, we turned that into a web series, and that was my first filmmaking thing as a writer-producer. So, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that's I love that. Story. I, by the way, big fan of of Scream Queens that was my wife and I made sure never to miss that when it came on that was, that was Dude, a fun show I mean I'm so happy that Glenn Powell like not that he like needs my like being proud of him but like him like Chad Radwell was like my favorite character from Scream Queens he just he thought he was so funny yeah. and that's what I modeled one of the characters off in my in my show he called his he was the villain and his name was the douche I mean pretty obvious so, you know like that type of thing but I just I just I love that show so much and I was so excited to see something set in college because you know normally in America we're so obsessed with high school yeah so, yeah so uh, were there any filmmakers or writers that influenced you Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, uh, like, you know, even for this, you know, Brian Murphy, obviously, um, you know, uh, uh, every writer on Buffy Vampire Slayer, like, you know, in terms of like filmmakers, like I love Jennifer Kent. I love the Babadook. I know, obviously, let's call out the rabbit in the corner, like, like Richard Kelly and the, and Johnny Dark was obviously a very inspiration for me. Um, <laughs> that's not yeah, I mean, um, and um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, John Carpenter, both Cronenberg's father and son. Weirdly enough, more the son because Possessor was such a huge uh, inspo for Hypo. And also, I love that movie. It's so a I great was movie. like, yeah, yeah, so much so. But yeah, there's, you know, um, Claire Denis. Maybe I'm one of the few people that really loved High Life, but like, I just, some, like, I just think that movie is so strange with this Xbox. But I was like, oh man, this is great. So I can go on and on. But yeah, I mean, definitely, like, you know, um, also Greg Araki in terms of queer filmmakers, you know, like he, like uh, the Doom Generation and Mysterious Skin, you know, all also now Apocalypse, which no one watched, but I did. I was obsessed <laughs> with, like, you know. Um, but yeah, <laughs> you know it's funny with Donnie Darko. I'm, I was dating, uh, I was dating someone at the time, and and she's like, "Oh, we have to watch this movie, Donnie Darko. It's so great." And I was at, I was yeah. at home, and I was like, "All right." And it was like on a Saturday, like late afternoon or something. And I was like, "Oh my god, this movie is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. I love that film." It is. And it's so. Yeah, I mean, I do too. And like, I mean, the big, the, I mean, my big, and the reason I think I, I, I used it for like a cipher for hypo was because like, you know, you at the beginning of Bud Gyllenhaal's a asking how one sucks a fuck. And then you like have that, like Patrick Swayze being the terrible self-help guru and that sub, that teacher who does not know how to teach, but then in Sparkle Motion. And then you also have like Donnie sitting on the bed next to his mother crying and he's like how does it feel to have a wacko for a son and she says it feels wonderful yeah. and that's in the same movie and I just learned I mean maybe this is like showing my age because I got you know I'm 32 so like I watched Donnie uh, kind of in high school which is when it first came out but like I didn't realize that that movie because obviously it became a cult hit but I didn't realize that that movie tanked not tanked but suffered because of 9-11 because of all the plane stuff yeah. like seeing it like, I've never viewed of that it, like you know it's um, part, and like it's it's like it's interesting when you watch movies like the Blair Witch Project. I love it's one of my favorite horror movies, and yet I was, I was so independent of the like all that world of it becoming like is it real or not real? Like hiding the actors, trying to make it because like I think that movie stands on its own regardless of that mystery. But having that kind of behind it too is so fascinating. You know, to go through those those little moments of touchstones of film history in which yeah you know, films are because of their time you know? it, yeah it's funny because I remember I'm just I've just flashed back right now I remember where I was in 99 when I was reading a little bit about Blair Witch and again it's before like you know internet was huge right mm -hmm. and you, yeah. know, you had all these influences with social media and stuff and it was like this film it's like it went back to like that sort of 70s cannibal movie sort of like is it real right. is it not you know where's the cast right. are they really missing and it had this hype right. that was building to it and it was like wow I can't wait to see this movie and the same thing with Donnie right. Darko um, yeah. You know, I remember, you know, Donnie Darko was in and out of theaters in like a blip. So when I saw it, I think it was like early 2002, probably when it was on cable. Right. 
Um, yeah. And I'm showing my age now by calling it cable. But there you go. But uh, <laughs> why don't why don't we start talking? Cable. Yeah, yeah, I know. But it feel, I feel like if I'm not saying streamer, I, I I'm dating myself. Right. right. <laughs> you know? right. It's like I have AMC Plus, so I have access to the AMC streaming uh, like live stream. But I, I mainly just use that to watch, you know, all the sure uh, or. You know, all the yeah, other stuff. But anyway, oh, yeah. let's continue. So why don't we get, speaking of horror, why don't we talk about your film, Hypochondriac? Why don't you tell everybody out there what your film is about? Sure. So Hypochondriac uh, is a gay horror movie based off my mental breakdown. At the beginning, it's just based on a real breakdown. I just, some people get confused sometimes. I just want people to, it's mine. It's mine. Trust me, it's mine. Um, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I'm not taking somebody else's breakdown and telling their story. But, um, but anyway, um, it, uh, it tells the story of a, a young potter ceramicist, uh, Will, who's, um, has a pretty good job and he loves his boyfriend and his, his boss is kind of annoying, but like, it's, it's fine. But, um, when he was 12, his mother in a, in a fit of psychosis tried to kill him. Um, and she was since hospitalized. And all of a sudden, 18 years later, she comes out of the woodwork, leaving voicemails, telling him not to trust his boyfriend. And while that's happening, he suffers an injury at work that causes these unexplainable symptoms. And then eventually he starts hallucinating a man in a wolf costume. And so he goes down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out what the hell is going on. But, but by doing so, he's pushing everybody in, away because he doesn't want anybody to know. And that confluence of events causes him to crack. And we watch him go through this and hopefully get through to the other side. But no spoilers. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I didn't realize that this was actually based on something that's happened. That- came from your experience so i don't want i don't want to pry so oh no trust me everybody prize the first question it's funny that you didn't even ask it first because they're like what happened and so i'm happy to um sure oh yeah uh, so basically like um yeah i lost full functioning of my arms for six months after an injury at work um and dr google told me i was dying of als and my mother who was bipolar was leaving me voicemails telling me not to trust my friends so that and when i mean i lost function of my arms i couldn't lift my phone i couldn't shave i couldn't eat food with a fork it was like pretty painful um so that confluence of events caused me to crack and that's ultimately what uh, the movie is uh, based on. More of an emotional retelling than an actual retelling, because uh, I wrote the first draft as therapy, and everyone was like, Addison, this sucks. And I was like, but it happened. And they're like, well, just because it happened doesn't mean it's interesting. And I was like, that means you hate me. And they're like, no, just do better, Addison. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And then ultimately decided on more of an emotional retelling. Also, like, the first draft had, like, a cult in it. Like, a, the wolf costume was a friend that died. There was also, like, a huge indictment on the on the on the medical community like way more than it is there now and also I think he gets hit by a car and dies at the end like I was truly just grasping at straws Um, but you know finally settled on you know the story of the hidden trauma of uh, my mother and also how my body basically manifested this disease or just like this, this symptoms of a disease that I, of course, did not have, and my obsession into uh, trying to figure out if I'm dying or not when I was trying to avoid basically talking about my mother. Gotcha. So, um, wh- wow, that's really interesting. So, I mean, when you're talking about reality and trying to mm-hmm. make that into a script, yeah, and, and you said, you know, the first draft, people are like, yeah, no. Um, can, can you talk there were bits and pieces people were like yes but also people were like this is yeah I sure. mean I, the real story I was a production assistant and I, I was a production assistant in the movie and Lord knows I don't want to make a movie about a person who's working in the movies so sure. I changed it to yeah. Joe Potter yeah. I mean because you know I mean you always hear about it right people are like oh I have this great story uh, oh I know this thing that happened to me and you know you always hear about it when people talk about wanting to write or whether it's a book or a screenplay or make a movie or whatever right. can you talk to, to us about like how you take something that's real and then how do you transform that so it can fit into a narrative like film totally i mean i'm gonna be honest with you it took a while and i'm I'm so glad that i have that skill now but it really i mean i was sensitive about it because it happened to me so like i would take notes and personally in a way that was like not healthy because i was also like writing it in the middle of my breakdown at first and so like that was like also something that i needed but but you know it was hard for me to take notes and it wasn't until much later that i was finally able to separate myself it's like me um you know it's like me like right now when, when you're like oh i don't want to 
cry and I'm like, trust me, I've, I've said a lot of, I've, I've like really talked about this a lot because you get a certain amount of separation when you talk about it again and again and again and again, which is honestly like a literal therapy technique because, um, you know, it's called exposure therapy. I have OCD and, um, the more I expose myself to these catastrophic intrusive thoughts that I have, mm-hmm. the, um, the, um, less powerful they become as it were. So, I mean, that's ultimately what it was, but like it took, it took a good six months before I sat down with a friend of mine and I remember her being like, this is the, the crux of your movie is your mother and you're avoiding writing about it and putting all these other things because you're, 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 you know, you, you, you know, you, you are avoiding it and you need to attack it head on. And I was like, fine. And once I did that and then also combined all of my friends into a boyfriend character, Luke, who was the last there, it kind of started coming to a more cohesive role. And, once I kind of unlocked the idea of like removing the reality of the situation and trying to tell a more emotional retelling of what happened, trying to recreate on film and in the script what it felt like to have a mental breakdown, that was more of an interesting in, I think, than the actual story. Because ultimately it's like, regardless of what happens in the movie, like I'm not interested in telling people what really what really happened because it's all from Will's perspective, from my perspective. So who knows if my mother and father were really like that, but that's how I perceived them during my psychosis. And that I think is an interesting thing because there's no villain in thinking the movie. He's at war with his brain. And that to me is scarier because if, and even, you know, in, in the movie injures himself because of a hallucination. And it's like that danger that I think is terrifying, you know, not being like an outside demon haunting him, but his literal brain trying to kill him. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I the hardest part for me, well, I mean, there were a few watching the film, but you're watching Will trying to get help, and he's going to doctors, yeah. and he's telling his boyfriend Luke he's not well. He's telling his uh, his boss he's not well, and right. all of a sudden, there, the boss is like, "Ah, eh, you'll be okay." And you're kind of getting right. the doctors like, "Ah, eh, here's some pills, you'll be okay." Uh, can right. you talk about the frustration of what it's like reaching out and going, "I need help," and then having people yeah. just kind of be like, "Oh, you'll be okay." Yeah, you know, it was. I, I, I think the one thing that I've taken away from this experience is like that, like psycho, like the psychiatry and psychology and uh, medical professionals don't speak to each other. So, like to be told that it's like you'd be shocked how the mind can affect the body. I'm like, cool. And they're like, go to therapy, and I'm like, well, I am in therapy, and I'm still feeling these things. So, can we can we just like move past this and try to see if there's like a combination that we can find in which it's both physical and mental? Because I literally, literally had an injury to my arms but everything else they were like you know it wasn't until six months in because this is the thing i mean i, I get it because because there's a, i'm not the only hypochondriac out there but like it's very difficult to see a neurologist and it wasn't until i this has been happening for six months that my symptoms were were consistent with multiple sclerosis that a neurologist finally saw me and gave me an mri and a muscular and neuromuscular tests in order to rule out all these diseases because it's like one in ten thousand people suffering from that but my friend's brother had just died of als so i was like really you know um in the thick of it especially with my mental health but yeah it was frustrating because i would you know that bro doctor um played by michael cassidy's or like based off a real doctor that i saw and i live in la so you know i walk into an urgent care and all of a sudden this like model hot dude just comes in and he's like hey bro let's see what's going on and i'm just like okay your biceps are just too big for me to take you seriously i I just don't know what to do um you know (laughs) And then like, and then I would see the next doctor and then they're like, oh, we don't take your insurance, but I'm like panicking. I'm like, I just need to see a doctor. And she's like, okay, well, it's going to be $300, $400. Um, and then there's test is going to be even more, but he's the nicest guy. And then the guy's like, um, yeah, I mean, it's probably in your head, but you might have a sinus infection. So here are steroids. So it's like, it's just like that just kept happening to me. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. And then I, I was told I had a muscle injury. I was told it was tendonitis. Like, I mean, I think ultimately it was a repetitive strain injury. But, you know, when I was told it was a muscle injury, I then went to like, and this is a dumb thing. I started looking holistically, which is something we cut from the script as well. But, you know, that was at the point where this holistic massage therapist injured me to the point where I was so, I lost full functioning of my arms. And I was also saying like, uh, acupuncturist, like I was trying, throwing everything at the wall. But for, but fortunately, a really good psychiatrist was kind of guiding me through it, pulling me out of this kind of world of hypochondria and OCD. But it took a while because, um, you know, it just takes time. And uh, I've learned a lot now. Yeah. <laughs> Never Google your symptoms. Just don't I, do it. I was going to say, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I think we've all been there at some point, right? I got a headache, right. my eyes are tearing, and I'm sneezing. Oh, my God, I have Ebola. No, 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 you don't. Oh, no, you're I okay. Mean, like, literally, <laughs> I, I, know it's in the, I know it's in the news now, but, like, I was, like, I, I'm very susceptible to bug bites, and I woke up to a bunch of them this morning, and I was, like, oh, my God, I have monkeypox. And I was, like, Addison, come on, you don't have monkeypox. Like, I know that it's, uh, but I'm, like, you know, like, if that happens, sure, but it's just bug bites. Like, you get bug bites all the time. Yeah. And it's just something that I live with. Well, it's kind of hard, too, after these last, you know, couple of years, right? It's like, you know, pandemic, know. masking, vaccinations, boosters, stay away from yeah. people, live in a bubble. And then it's like, okay, we're coming right. out of it. Oh, wait, no, hold on. There's this other one coming in yeah. now. It's just like, I told somebody the other day, I go, I can only deal with one pandemic at a time. So right now, I'm just going to deal with COVID <laughs> and everything else is going to be. I don't care if Ebola broke out here, smallpox. Right. I'll deal with that yeah. later. You know, it's like, my right. goodness. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, cra- it's crazy. Um, one of the things that uh, I really was um, impressed with is the on-screen relationship uh, portrayal of um, uh, uh, of our Will and Luke's relationship. Yeah. It felt incredibly yeah. real. It didn't feel like a movie relationship. Um, it felt like Luke was doing everything he could to understand and help Will. Um, but also yeah. there were moments of frustration and helplessness because, yeah. you know, it, it appears like he doesn't, like, know how to or maybe, you know. So I, I was curious, um, in terms of a real world thing, if yeah. if someone is has a friend or a family member who's dealing with mental illness, what could you tell them to do that can help that individual, help for them process it and be able to help their friend get through whatever it is that they're that they're dealing with? Right. Yeah, I mean, so like again, the, the oh, disclaimer I always give is I'm not a therapist, but course, I obviously yeah. have dealt with in both the care care uh, taker, um, and I've also been the person who's taken care of. So like, I, I you know, it's hard, it's difficult because there's there's like two sides of the mental health coin, right? It's the people who want help and the people who don't want help, and I think. I think my issue and I think ultimately what, you know, what Will and Luke's issue was that Luke was trying to help, but, but in like a way that, that made, uh, Will feel like a burden. So like, that was kind of the ultimate like issue with that because like, Will wasn't at a point to accept it. And that, that kind of, uh, that kind of budding of, of term of, uh, conflict is ultimately, I think what, you know, causes them to, you know, um, uh, separate themselves at, at a certain point in the movie but i mean it depends because if somebody's really depressed honestly the best thing that i found is just going over to their house and like cleaning up the room for them mm-hmm. even if they don't have, like you know cer- cer- certain things like that you know like it's just you know like the the whole thing you know that was the thing too whenever i was like when people were like let me know if i can do anything i'm like but that means you put the onus on me and i have to again be the burden be like can you get me uh like salt uh so i can put it in the bath to like cure my aching muscles versus like somebody being like hey i'm coming over tomorrow we're gonna hang out and then the other person could be like no i don't want that and then there you go you put up the boundary but i think more often than not if somebody was just like especially during my darkest days was like hey i'm coming over we're hanging out right now and i'll be like okay yeah and then they can come over and, and see what happens you know but like being that person like if, if i'm just thinking of like how i would want to be helped it's like it's like that because it's the, the less that i have to do when i'm in that kind of state of of um of panic or ocd or depression is to do more work and it was always very helpful when my friends were like i'm coming over we're hanging out you know then that i was able to just be like great the onus isn't on me anymore because the more it's on me the, the worse i feel if that makes sense it does it, it really does what's interesting is that this is um your movie is the third movie that I featured this year on the program that has the topic mm. of mental illness in it. And it would yeah. actually be the fourth if I go back to dis- uh, November of last year. It's, it's yeah. very interesting because I'm noticing that more and more movies are coming out that are looking at mental health. And I'm wondering mm. if you're th- you know, what your thoughts are as to why that is. You know, I think genre has the most beautiful capacity to explore shit without it being kind of like really over the over the top or like beating you overhead for it because it's it's almost like a sideways in which i think is really cool and i think we're as millennials and gen uh, and gen z as we grow up we are like realizing that 
I think a lot of things could be just could have solved when we were kids to realize that we were like anxious or depressed or all these other things because we're just able to talk about it more. So I think as like the as as we as we age, we just get we're like, what do we want to talk about? What were we fucked up with as kids? What do we wish like, you know, like that's like, you know, um, I, I, I wanted to make this movie like hoping that you know, one, I just wanted to tell my story, but you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that I, I, you know, I show this movie and people come up to me afterwards and they're just like, hey, thank you. This is like a really honest portrayal and this helped me. And, you know, I need people to know that this movie ends with hope because obviously I'm still here. So it's based on a real breakdown. I'm still here um, because there is, there is the power of like getting through it. But I think, I, I just, I think we're finally opening up about it because I think there's so much, there's only so much trauma you can take before you're like, okay, we need to talk about this. Cause I think my biggest issue was suffering inside it's like I just didn't want to be a burden but the moment I stopped suffering in silence was a moment that people started helping and it's like that could be if I, and that's all I want to tell that's all the stories I want to tell I want to tell genre stories um, uh, that are queer and deal with mental health because I you know that's what I've dealt with and that's the kind of stuff that I wish I had as a kid or a teenager or a college student growing up and so that's what I want to make and I think I feel like people are also having similar vibes because of that or like uh, vibes the vibes um I, th I feel like people are um wanting that and there's and there's room for that and also other filmmakers like me uh feel like that's an important topic now well I think it's important too filmmakers such as yourself do uh discuss topics like this and, and present topics like this because it's like anything right the more you talk about it, the more you present it the more yeah. people can understand it and say oh okay i've never dealt with this but i can see what it's like from a movie perspective if something right. like this were to happen to me or a friend or a family yeah. member it just helps right. get that in their mind that if something like this were to happen then um you know they can uh, they have some sort of basis just to start with. And then you can start getting right. into the serious stuff from there. Um, yeah. I want to get into the, the actual filmmaking. I know, I know I'm kind of running <laughs> out of time here. Um, but, um, but, you know, as a director, you're not afraid to use the frame. And you let the action right. happen uh, in, in these lingering shots. And I was curious, <laughs> at what point did you decide you wanted to make that part of your directing um, a technique? Yeah, so, like, I was obviously, like, a lot of cinematography you know was a direct and, and utter collaboration between me and my uh, cinematographer cinematographer oh my god uh dustin Supinchak, who's just incredible and if anybody's listening yes hire him he's the best but yeah i mean i think ultimately we came up with this vocabulary of of i just love static shots i think there's something that makes it and especially when dealing with a movie that is that it will eventually lift you so high up the ground and you'll feel very disoriented starting in static is is such a uh, I think phenomenal way to ground something um, and only moving the camera when things start to uh, devolve into chaos. Um, uh, and so we, we, we wanted to start like as much in static. And then we also created um, this like vocabulary of what we will do to create this kind of idea of psychosis. So um, there's this video game called Eternal Darkness on Nintendo GameCube um, that has this insanity meter. And every time the person gets damaged, the insanity meter goes a little bit up. And, and so we always said two insanity meters going on at all time. This is what I want the audience to believe is real and not real, and what's actually real and not real. So with that, we were able to combine certain techniques. We, um, you know, we would paint um, a Vaseline on the lens, uh, lens, and we would have this thing called the lens baby that blurs the reactions, that blurs something from behind. We were working with cow anamorphics that have this great, especially when um, you know you use the 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 certain lens like the forty. Um, you they create this like weird bubble like kind of round effect that that really makes things very funky and so we had all these tools in principal photography as, as well as everybody else was also um filled in on we always were using the insanity meter so like that's how everybody was kind of on the same page it's like we would talk about each scene and what it means and how it how it how we want it to be portrayed and then um in post we continued with that and then started using like you know the crossfades the uh the doubling mirroring the mirroring kind of um, representing the Jekyll and Hyde nature of of, of uh, psychosis of of the person who is lucid and the person who is, you know, um, essentially the monster. But you know, I, I don't ever think of the the wolf in, in it is like not the. I, there was something you said earlier that was like really um, spoken to me. Is like the monster is the unknown, and I think ultimately it, it, when when we embrace that monster and, and it become and it becomes in the light and we acknowledge it, we're able to recognize that. 
it's there. It's never going to go away, but it's very possible to live with it. And I and I and I, I think that's a good like metaphor for, for mental health because you know you ask yourself like uh, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, and then you know, and it's scary, but also you have definitions and having definitions and putting yourself in boxes give gives you an idea of how to deal with something. So so that was ultimately the filmmaking process. We had our we had our. Um, in camera and uh, and effects, and then we had our post effects, and we're able to to I think emotionally retell what it was like to crack while starting with static shots and then moving the camera when we needed to 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 mimic the descent into madness. I don't want to forget about your great cast uh, in the film. You have Zach Via, who plays Will, mm-hmm. uh, Devin Gray as Luke, his boyfriend, and Marlena Forte as Will's mom. Talk about how you ended up casting them because they were such, a, uh, I mean, obviously an important part, but I mean, this this trio right here is the heart uh, of your film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, 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 we were casting in the middle of the pandemic. Like, you know, we were ready to go March 2020 and then all of a sudden everything shut down and we're like, great. Well, who knows when we're going to do this? So, uh, but we started casting because we're like, oh, clearly the pandemic's going to end in May. Um, <laughs> or clearly the pandemic's going to end in October. Clearly the pandemic's going to end in January. So, you know, we could, and then finally we had vaccines and we're like, okay, clearly we don't know when this is going to end. But we shot it in June 2021 when we all thought COVID is over. Um, and then all my friends were like, literally like on Instagram stories being like, yes, no mask. And then I got out and I was like, I'm ready to join you guys. And people were like, mask mandate, Delta. And I was like, ah, uh, fuck. <laughs> but luckily we had no uh, COVID cases on set and this is not what you asked. But anyway, so the so basically the, the long and short of it is we just auditioned. Um, I think there was a beginning moment where we where we like got obsessed with the idea of like getting names or whatever and to be fair i think we did but in the way that was like you know the the read the script the actor takes like months to read the script and then ultimately we're like you know let's just audition and see what we get because um i think we might get some pretty great diamonds in the rough and then um you know zach was the first person cast and he was also the last tape i saw and i was just like floored i was like oh my god this person gets this and then he spent a year with me and then was able i mean you've, now you've been talking to me for however long we've been talking and you can kind of get a sense of zach playing me but combining him and me like you know wearing my skin soup in a way that really feels honest because he went to juilliard have you heard of that um and so he's like really you know he's really um I don't know, just really methodical in the way he works. And so he was the first person on, and then we just started building our team, as it were. And uh, Dubek, who plays the dad, like, blew me away. It was the first person where I was like, oh, you get that the dad's funny. Everybody was trying to play him as a butthole. And I'm like, I don't view my dad that way. I just think he's sardonic in his humor. So, like, when he came, when he came uh, I was just like, yes. And then Marlene, when she taped, uh, you know, and she's worked with, like, Ryan Johnson. She's worked with J.J. Abrams. Like, she's, like, you know, worked with a lot of people. And I saw her, and, I, you know, she founded The Labyrinth, you know, with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, um, like, and she came and auditioned uh, on Sarah's tape. And she made every wrong choice, but they were so bold that I could put them in any other part of the movie that I met with her. And she was the only one I met with. I was like, Marlene, uh, I'm in an infuriate. And she's like, let's make a movie. And, you know, Devin, Devin came to us and, and also taped. But I would do this, you know, I was because we were in the middle of pandemic. And I was like, I don't want to do Zoom callbacks because I don't know if I could tell. I'd rather just talk to them. So I met with each actor for like an hour to two hours, depending on how much we vibed. And that's how I picked them. And I just... I'm, you know, I'm from theater, like I, acting is so important to me. And as a person who, you know, that's what I understood going into the filmmaking process most of all because of that. So, you know, uh, I, me and my casting director were like, we want really good actors. And then once we got our core five, as it were, Maddie Zima got on board. Um, and then, you know, all the doctors kind of filled out our final thing as favors, but they were all good actors and I knew who they were. So I'm really proud of that that, that part of the, the, the movie making and filmmaking specifically. So thanks for calling out. Yeah, no, they're fantastic. And I mean, sure. you know, the scene with, uh, I don't want to give anything away, but there's a scene with Will and Luke uh, towards the finale of the film. Oh, and, that part. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot of trust that goes on when you're doing a scene like that. Um, yeah. I mean, talk about like the trust between a director and an actor when, when the, the actor knows going into it, okay, I'm going to have to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, but as far as the like, what kind of prep was done? Because I have to say that whole sequence was so well done because you're you're, you're, again, you don't know what's real, what's not, what's happening, what's not. Um, But when when we're talking about that scene, um, how how did you guys approach it? 
Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, without ruining anything, there's just like a pretty, uh, what, what he's talking about is a, a pretty um, intimate scene. So sex yeah. scene that gets. Um, and we were, I mean, we dealt with that very, I mean, I would say, I want to say professionally is the right word. I mean, we had an intimacy coordinator and we also had a stunt coordinator on, on that day. And that was the day we did. There were moments of physical violence, sexual violence, blood and gore all in this 14 hour day in which uh, we were in a tiny studio apartment. Um, and so it was, it was a wild day, but, um, basically what happens in terms of the, in terms of the intimacy scene, we had an intimacy coordinator and it was honestly like. People are like, oh, you, this, this person's here to police, make sure everybody's safe. I'm like, yeah, that's part one part of their job. But also their other part of their job is to form the narrative with you. And that was like, you know, and weirdly enough, my friend Carly, who I went to high school with, does this professionally. So asked her to get involved and, and, and we got to and she met with me first. And I talked to her about what I wanted. And we um, and she was like, OK, cool. Then she went to Devin and Zach and, he was, and they were like and she was like, this is what uh, Addison wants. They told me what they were comfortable with. And then Carly talked to me about what they were willing to do. And so we all typed it up in this all, all big document of being like, this is how it's I mean, not like he puts his hand here. He touches his butt here. And yeah. we're just like these are my boundaries. And this is what I won't cross. And then this is what I'm able to do. And then we were able to like with them live in that uh, that thing. And when things. Um, uh, when things got, you know, I mean, if things people were uncomfortable, we already created this safe space space for them to vocally to vocally talk about. It. I think there was one point and one scene in which um, one of our actors was like, "I don't know if this is the right way to do this scene," and I was like, "You know what? You're right. I'm not going to use this. Let's just move on from this scene and go to a different cut." And it was like so easy. It was just like we already had that trust with each other. Yeah. And they were just you know, so, and it also felt a little, I mean, not mechanical in the way, but it felt very professional. Like, you know, the ropes would come on, we, we would talk about the scene, the ropes would come off, we would do the scene, and it got emotionally charged in the way that, again, we were all safe because, as it were, we had like a safety word in that sense because we all kind of had the structure and the foundation of what we knew we were dealing with. Sure. And so, you know, so that's how that like kind of came together. Yeah. It felt very fluid because as the scene's progressing, you're kind of like, oh, okay, where's the cut? going to come in here and then it's like oh there's right. no there's no cut coming in here this is we're, we're staying on this and it's like oh yeah oh we're really staying on this and mm-hmm. but it felt it felt natural and it didn't feel forced it felt very fluid right. it felt it worked because of the way not only how everybody did it but also yeah. as well in the story and the film itself it all felt yeah, cohesive yeah, it, that's the thing. It's like, I don't want to do a sex scene just to do a sex scene. I think ultimately, narratively, it fit. And also, part of me really wanted to show the authenticity of what it's like to have gay sex because we have so little of that in actual cinema, especially in horror, you know? like So there's, there's like so many versions of it where you're just like, I get it because the sex scene is not necessarily important to the story. Like, we don't need to show uh, like all the processes of how we get to uh, the end result. But I think, you know, for me, like, while I had no one looking over me and policing me being like, you can't do this it's not going to sell i'll be like let me do this once and maybe i won't get to do it again but i got the opportunity and i wanted to explore it because it i think it was necessary to the story and i'm I'm glad everybody was on board well hats off to you and everyone involved in the film it's a great movie um if they if anybody out there wants to follow you or the film on social media where can they go uh, then go to Addy Bear Five with a Y A D D Y B E A R Five. I'm on Twitter, but it's just a doom scroll, so I, I don't think I'm a good follow. Um, but uh, Instagram, you can follow it. Uh, follow the the uh, movie on at hypochondriac.film. Um, and those are the two places that you can find us. And it's- Hypochondriac is available in theaters right now, and it's going to be on demand mm-hmm. and on digital starting August fourth. Uh, Addison, thank you so much for joining me here in the Graveyard Show. This was a fantastic interview, and and I'm really yeah. thrilled to have you on, and uh, would love to have you back on for your next film. Yes, hopefully I make another one. The Caretaker, I need to, I need to now. I mean, this was so fun. Oh, should I say the Caretaker a little differently? You'd be like the Caretaker. And as I put this interview to rest, uh, I really want to thank Addison for joining me here on the show. Um, as I told him when we were done, this um, this interview went down a road I was not expecting. and um, But I thought it was important to talk about mental health. And since Addison was so uh, generous about being open about his experience, um, I thought you know, it would be just good for uh, all of us to hear his experience with it and how others can help if they have family or friends uh, currently dealing with mental illness. Um, so I hope all of you out there enjoyed this and, um, I can't recommend hypochondriac enough. It's a really, really well done film. And, um, Addison's quite a talent. 
he really is um this film is is a very solid film and uh, again it is available now in theaters and you can check it uh check it out on demand and on digital starting august 4th by the way there's a little bit more to the interview that i'm saving for my end of year show because we talk about the film's ending and obviously i don't want to give it away since the movie's just coming out so uh on my voices from the grave show in december uh, I have some good outtakes of this interview that I'll be playing on there. And it's going to be uh, Addison and I discussing uh, the uh, ending of the movie, as well as working with his director of photography, Dustin Supinchak. Uh Dustin, by the way, um, one of the projects he worked on was Scare Package. He, uh, he shot the cold open to that film, just to give you a little bit of reference there. And as I begin to close down the graveyard, I would like to invite you to join me in my Catacombs of Horror, which is available on YouTube. Catacombs of Horror, it's my video production that I, uh, that I do. There are three videos currently up right now. The first one is about um, 1980s horror and what best represents 1980s horror. Uh, the second one is the very popular favorite scenes from Count Yorga Vampire. I've been getting some great comments on there from people. Um, so it's nice, it's nice to have an interaction uh, with uh, listeners. Even if they're not even listeners of the show, they found the video and uh, they've been commenting on it. Actually, somebody, somebody pointed out, I, I said uh, the car was a VW uh, wagon when it was a VW bus. And I'm like, I can't believe that I said that. But uh, yeah, so I pinned that at the top. So any of you out there who are looking to correct me, it's already there. <laughs> <laughs> and the third one is uh, my thoughts on Halloween 4, uh, the missed opportunity of the Halloween series, and why I think outside the original, that is the most important film in the series. Catacombs of Horror, available on YouTube. And of course, you can find the Graveyard Show podcast on YouTube as well. I've uploaded a bunch of stuff, and um, if you only listen to the podcast, I highly suggest that you subscribe to the Graveyard Show podcast on YouTube because I upload new videos just for YouTube. So I've uploaded uh, old promos of the Graveyard Show podcast as well as old promos from podcasts back in 2009 and 10. You can find those on there as well as um, some appearances that I did on podcasts back in uh, 2009 and 10, uh, one of which was with my um, fill-in host, The Undertaker. So check it out. I also have plans on uh, doing new videos for that uh, as well. I'm putting a plan together uh, to upload some... uh, different stuff just to kind of keep the YouTube channel fresh. Once I do that, I will let you know as well. But you should subscribe to the Graveyard Show podcast YouTube channel, even if you listen to it just as a podcast, so you don't miss all this new fun and groovy stuff. (laughs) All right. Uh, The Graveyard Show podcast is also available everywhere podcasts exist. And of course, if you know anyone who is a fan of horror, please Invite them to join me here inside the graveyard. New listeners and friends are always welcome. Now, my next podcast is going to be a quick turnaround because um, I'm going to be talking about the new film Allegoria. And Allegoria is going to be uh, available on demand and on Shudder starting August 2nd. Joining me for that uh, podcast is going to be the writer director of the film Spider One. Uh, you may know him from Power Man 5000. Uh, and also uh, the star of the movie, uh, Chrissy Fox, who, uh, well, you may know her as the front woman of Knee High Fox. Uh, they will be joining me here in uh, just a few days to talk about their new film, Allegoria, which will be available on Shutter and on demand starting August 2nd. So it's going to be a quick turnaround of shows, something that's uh, very rare here on the Graveyard Show podcast. Sometimes I go weeks between shows, but this one's going to be a tight turnaround. So just uh, be ready to join me here very, very soon. And as you exit the graveyard, I would like to remind you to please lock the gate behind you. We wouldn't want anyone to get out. Until next time.